Ian, people are very excited about the prospect of another series of Page 94. They're desperate for more of this stuff. Can we have another series? Is that the will of the people? Yes. Then I'd better say no. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome back to Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week we are going to be talking to two different people. Firstly, Paul Vickers, Private Eye's military correspondent. Uh, We're going to be talking to him about military recruitment, about military procurement and about the increasingly strained and complex relationship between the military and the private companies which do massive amounts of the military's work, build the machines, and are running them too. We'll also be talking to Craig Brown, privatised resident diarist, about the challenges and the joys of President Trump. But first, Paul Vickers. Now, at the moment, uh, we are halfway through a 10-year contract which the government has awarded to Capita, a private firm better known in the pages of the eye as Crapita. And that contract, worth £440 million, hands over responsibility for recruitment in the army to Capita. But how is that going? We asked Paul. They were expected to increase the number and improve the quality of recruits joining the army. But after five years, neither of these objectives has actually been achieved. Since the last SDSR, the Strategic Defence Review, the army is expected to actually decrease in number. So you've got two systems potentially working against each other. The army needs to cut numbers at the front line, in fact, across the whole board. But Capita is contracted over 10 years at £440 million to increase numbers and to increase the quality of the people who join. Is it that you need more people so that you can then get rid of them to comply with the Strategic Defence Review. Why get rid of people in the first place? What's the motivation behind cutting the army, I suppose? I think you've hit the nail on the head. Of course, the army wants as many good recruits as possible, but it does now have this issue of having to fit the model applied to it by the Treasury, which means that it needs to reduce its numbers on the front line or across most of its services to 82,000. Um, that's, that's a difficult circle to square, um, and it's quite an expensive one to square. If we take the recent experience of Major Cameron, who is the commanding officer for recruiting from Four Scots, which is in the Royal Regiment of Scotland, he's given us a very good example of the failure of Capita's recruitment model. With the number of recruiting officers in Scotland reduced from 14 to just five, he's decided to set up his own recruitment drive – Obviously, as a recruiting officer, he wants to recruit more people. But he's found that all his efforts have been thwarted time and time again by Crapita. For example, last year, he says that Four Scots distributed 900, well, they call them contract coupons. These coupons are handed to anybody who expresses an interest in joining the army. They're designed to give recruits, you know, phone numbers to call if they have any questions and, you know, just to give them some additional guidance and support. But using the Data Protection Act as a cover, uh, Capita have insisted that it is actually the owner of the information that Major Cameron has acquired in this way. And they've asked him and his team to hand over all that information to the Army Career Service, which in turn has passed it over, as is their legal obligation, directly to Capita. And once in Capita's system, few of the potential recruits that Major Cameron has found 
have discovered that they're able to apply for service in a Scottish regiment. The, the, the Scottish are very keen to join regiments from Scotland. Right. You can understand why. Yeah. But Capita, in order to meet the obligations to the Treasury, puts those recruits into a system which is UK-wide. And that's something that I certainly would have assumed is a matter solely for the military to run by itself, that of recruitment. Uh, That's correct. Until recently, the army relied on its recruiting officers and on recruiting staff who served alongside uh, regular soldiers. They were in the pay of the army. They'd taken the king's shilling and they performed uh, the same service as any other recruit. Um, But since the arrival of Capita and other private companies to deal with the issue of uh, recruitment, that's all changed. Capita boasted five years ago when it got the contract to do this work that it was going to release 1,000 recruiting officers uh, within the army at the time back to frontline service. In reality, it has released 1,000 recruiting officers, but sadly back to City Street because uh, morale among them collapsed and uh, they decided to vote with their feet and, uh, and left the army altogether. Obviously, this is something that you've written a great deal about in terms not only of recruiting soldiers, but in terms of building hardware. So procuring weapons, procuring vehicles, procuring ships. There have been loads of headlines about this where a private firm has been given a contract and then for some reason... It's not been up to scratch when it's delivered, and yet the contract is written in such a way that the military can't get out of it. That generally seems to be the case, unfortunately. The problem we have at the moment with complicated pieces of kit, and that goes for aircraft, it goes for submarines, it goes for tanks in particular, in order for these complicated systems to work for the customer, which in this case would be the Ministry of Defence, they have to keep the private contractors, the engineers who work for the private companies that build these systems on board at all times, partly due to cuts in funding for training within the military and partly because of the sheer complexity of the systems we're talking about, engineering recruits within the military don't have the expertise to actually work on the systems that they're expected to do now. Take, for example, the Type 45 destroyer, which, of course, as we all know, spends most of its time not working. So the Type 45 is uh, the destroyer that don't work in warm water, we've discovered, so they break down if they need to sail to anywhere like, for example, the Middle East. And also, I think the new headlines are that they can be heard 100 miles away by submarines maybe Russian submarines, any submarines actually can hear them from a long distance. Oh, that's correct. They're very noisy. Um, They're actually made by a a collective of uh, companies, including Babcock International and BAE Systems. Most of the big ticket projects emerge from cooperation between various private contractors. But essentially, they don't work. Um, (laughs) And when they do work, if you go below decks in a Type 45 that is actually able to function at sea, you'll find employees of BAE Systems working alongside ratings uh, and officers from engineering backgrounds within the Royal Navy. Now, that's a problem. 
It's a problem on on several levels. Uh, you know, on a day to day level, um, a an artificer apprentice will discover that the chap standing next to him, you know, fiddling with the engine, will be on four times the salary that he is and gets a much better holiday at the end of a tour. But that's a matter for them. What, what is more interesting is that if the Royal Navy rating uh, discovers that a part has been badly put together, for example, um, he is obliged by law to tell his seniors that the reason why the engine doesn't work is because the valves have been improperly fitted, for example. That causes a problem for the contractor who has built that system. When the artificer tells his petty officer, his chief petty officer, about the problem. So this is still entirely in Navy still? This this is within the Royal Navy. When he blows the whistle, as it were, to his his senior officer about this particular problem, he is protected by law and by a system that the MOD has put into place. He is obliged by law to explain what the problem is and the chief petty officer would then make a report about it. That's fine. However, the private contractor who builds the part um, is under no obligation whatsoever to protect that rating from prosecution or from dismissal. Is it only people who are contractors who are working, for example, on the Type 45 below decks who can be dismissed for raising a concern? It's anyone who works within the Ministry of Defence but who uh, deals with equipment uh, or indeed methods of operation that are determined by private contractors, by, for example, BAE Systems or by uh, a service contractor. Let me give you an example from 2015. Um, If we look at HMS Sultan, uh, which is a Royal Navy shore establishment, uh, which is owned by the Royal Navy, which is commanded by the Royal Navy, but is managed by Sodexo Defence Services Limited, which is a private company. Now, back in 2015, workers at HMS Sultan complained to the Ministry of Defence about what they said were serious human resource violations and questionable management behaviour. I'm sorry about the trade union speak, but... Essentially, they were upset about working practices. They were they were having to work in dangerous circumstances far too hard. That that was the nub of their case. Well, they found themselves sacked. The reason why they they found themselves sacked, bearing in mind their duty to tell Ministry of Defence commanders about their concerns, was that they were complaining about the private company that had got the contract to manage the facility. Now, their case was taken up by a whistleblowing campaigner uh, called Richard Thompson, uh, who wrote to the MOD about this, um, complaining about them being sacked for for doing what they were supposed to do. Um, He was told by the uh, deputy head of civilian HR policy, no less, that, quote, and this is important, while our policy states that everyone working in defence has a responsibility to speak up if they have concerns about a wrongdoing, it remains the case that the department is unable to prescribe internal policy to our partners. Therefore, if you want to complain about your circumstances within the Ministry of Defence, even if you're working as a soldier, sailor or airman, you have a right to protection from the MOD itself, but that right does not extend to the private company about which you are complaining. So... If you complain and the complaint relates to a private firm, 
which has a hand in wherever you're working, you can run the risk of being sacked by the MOD because you've got in the way of the relationship with the contractor. Precisely. It's kind of extraordinary that things have developed to this extent, I guess. There always has been this kind of relationship, but it's become more problematic, uh, partly because of the vast complexity of new defence projects. So at the moment, of course, we're looking at the successor to Trident coming online. We've got two new aircraft carriers virtually finished when they actually appear uh, on the seven seas with any aircraft on board to use is open to debate. All of these projects and projects within the Royal Air Force and within the British Army rely heavily on major private companies like BAE Systems, Babcock International, Lockheed Martin. And some of these companies, of course, aren't even wholly UK-owned. And that must create plenty more problems. For example, the recent botched Trident missile launch, if that's not too technical a term. Um, It's it's entirely correct. (laughs) (laughs) So so that uh, raised some questions, which I think you covered as well, about exactly who's in control of the missiles. And there's a lot of debate back and forwards in the papers on this. The MOD says, we're absolutely in control. We can fire a Trident missile anytime we like. Other people disagree. Well, I mean, it has to be said that there are some good things about using private military contractors in the way that the Ministry of Defence is obliged to do. And that is, you can deny being responsible when things do go wrong. For example, if you recall, after the Trident missile launch off the coast of Florida that went wrong, the Secretary of State for Defence was able to say in the House of Commons that the launch was a complete success. Um, It wasn't. But it was as far as the Royal Navy were concerned, because as far as the Navy was concerned, the test was to ensure that the crew of the submarine were able to fire the missile. And they did exactly that. The fact that the missile went towards Florida rather than towards the range that it was supposed to go towards was no longer the Navy's problem because as soon as they pressed the launch button, the the Royal Navy is no longer in charge or even in control of the missile that has just been fired. Who is? Lockheed Martin. That is in itself a fascinating issue. Um, The targeting system within a Trident II D5 warhead is the property of Lockheed Martin, a private company, a private company that also manages Aldermaston, the atomic weapons establishment where Trident missiles are maintained. And it is up to Lockheed Martin to provide the codes which give the Trident missile a direction to fly and a target to hit. It is not up to the Royal Navy to do that. The only codes that the Royal Navy have to worry about when a Trident D-5 missile is launched are the codes that allow the commander of the submarine to press the button to fire it. So when it's in the tube, the missile belongs to the Royal Navy, as it were, and then when it's out of the tube, conceptually... It's the property and the responsibility of Lockheed Martin. It is. Obviously, it's our responsibility for having fired the thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the, the flight path and the target is nothing to do with the Royal Navy whatsoever. Some might conclude that, given this fact, that our independent nuclear deterrent isn't quite as independent as some people would like us to believe. There's been a lot of debate over whether it's the Americans or the British who pull the strings. The fact that it might be a private company 
is kind of extraordinary. Well, that's the case. If you look at the history of the Trident D5 missile testing program, uh, you have to conclude that most of them worked remarkably well. It, it has a reputation for being a reliable weapon. That's a fact. Okay. Some of them, however, didn't. <laughs> and most of the early occasions within the testing regime where the missile failed were dealt with by the launch people, the people who actually pressed the button to fire it, mm. pressing a self-destruct button. In other words, they are responsible for launching it and they are responsible for saying, oh, hang on a minute, chaps, it's flying towards Miami. Um, let's, <laughs> let's destruct it. Right. That wasn't the case this time. This time, the missile automatically went into a self-destruct program. It automatically did this because of the software inside the guidance system, which was provided by Lockheed Martin. I mean, th that is kind of a perfect example of the tension between the military and private firms. But the there are so many. There seems to be no area of um, military life which is free of these complexities and tangles and problems. That's great. I mean, it used to be the case that, I mean, if you go back to the Second World War, um, the old and bold will recall that pilots were never actually the owners of their aircraft. It was always the ground crew that owned a fighter plane or a bomber that a pilot then took to a, a particular mission. That's actually extended a little bit these days in the sense that the Ministry of Defence really isn't the owner of the equipment that uh, it uses to perform its functions. The, the kit is still in the control of the manufacturing companies that provide it. It's impossible for the Royal Navy to maintain a new piece of equipment or a new weapons system without massive input from the company that manufactured it. And the outlook for whistleblowers doesn't seem much better in the short term uh, no, well, the MOD is completely satisfied that its uh, its policy of protection is, is adequate. Um, and, of course, it is if we're just talking about matters that uh, singularly uh, affect the Ministry of Defence and its operations. Yeah. However, anything to do with kit, anything to do with a service that is provided by, for example, Sodexo or Capita or any other company is not covered by the same legislation. So anyone who blows the whistle on a private contractor within the Ministry of Defence is not protected by the MOD's policy of protection. And it seems like there are so many operations which do include private contractors that actually the number of times where it's solely a matter between an individual serviceman or servicewoman and the MOD is actually going to be quite slim. Precisely. It actually puts the people who work on major projects within the Ministry of Defence and the people who use the equipment that they're expected to use under extreme difficulty. One of the problems with whistleblowing has always been people worrying that they may be breaking the Official Secrets Act, for example. Um, there was a case a few years ago of a Royal Navy rating who complained about security on board a nuclear submarine and he fell foul of the official secrets act now recruits who may not be working with sensitive equipment have to worry about how far the mod's own protection of their jobs actually goes because the protection provided by the ministry of defense does not extend to anything to do with the independent private companies that provide the equipment and the services that we're talking about 
it's really extraordinary. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, any change in the relationship between a private contractor and the Ministry of Defence is a political nightmare and it will take decades to sort out. More for you to write about in the meantime then? Well, it depends on the terms of the Espionage Act. Um, <laughs> I'm probably in trouble myself now for, for passing this information on. Well, shortly before your incarceration, Paul Vickers, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Now, uh, to finish this week's episode, an interview with Craig Brown. Craig is privatised resident diarist, and he has been channelling the great and the good and the bad and the awful uh, for many years now. One of the voices that he's done with a special success in the last year or so has been Donald Trump. Uh, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about the difficulties and the joys of doing Trump, and uh, I inadvertently may have stopped him from ever doing it again. Here's Craig. Everyone had this idea before he became president. Oh, well, he's just doing this for, uh, for public show, trying to get sort of rock-bottom supporters. But once he becomes president, the full weight of the office, and he'll act, he's actually a very intelligent, sensitive man, charming to be with, and he'll be entirely different. But in fact, because he, he's, he's very slightly toned them down in that he now won't comment on... I mean, he used to comment on soap stars who'd, who'd split up with their boyfriends and things like that. So he's, he's kind of stopped that. But because he's president, they, they do seem all the more uh, ridiculous and in some ways petrifying. Well, he, he does still tweet about things like Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings yes. on The Apprentice. Yes, I, <laughs> I know that was pathetic. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> and even that argument he got into about... Um, having the largest inauguration uh, crowd. I mean, it's so, so silly. And then that everyone was lying, even when the photographs were shown. But it is rather hard now that everyone's doing it. He's, yeah. uh, it's almost like a nationalised comedy. And so I was trying to think of that. I did one Melania, a lot of Trumps, which were kind of all right. It's hard to gauge her character. I mean, you can gauge her character, oddly enough, through her, her tweets. I mean, like Donald Trump's. You read her tweets, and they were sort of very, very bland. But what was I suddenly realised was striking about them, that she hardly ever mentioned other people. She would tweet views out of Trump Towers of Central Park and pictures of herself or something she'd just bought. But it was a, you realised it's a very kind of lonely life. I then thought of doing Donald Jr.'s tweets or something, and I'm sure that would be kind of a good angle in. A bit, yeah. bit like... Dear Dennis Letters, the Dennis Thatcher Letters. Which dear Bill? Up. Dear Bill, sorry, dear Bill. You know, that was a rather good way into Mrs. Thatcher because she was so done by satirists and jokesters everywhere that actually if you did it via Dennis, it, it became a fresh joke. Because you haven't really been doing Twitter diaries for very long. No, no Twitter's a real godsend because, you know, it just boils down everyone's vanity and his paranoia and everyone just becomes more of what they are. Well, this is the thing because... It l seems a bit like they were you were more extreme in your Trump tweets in your early ones. So more than a year before That's the election, yeah. it was things like, um, no disrespect to Pope Francis on his US tour, but the guy looks like a fruit in his frilly white dress. Fire your tailor, Frank. Right, yes. Um, <laughs> I don't like a loser, don't get me wrong. Jesus was a remarkable guy, a genius at publicity, but clinging on with your hands to a cross, that sends out all the wrong messages. But actually, they're not too much less extreme than the ones that you do now. And maybe that's because he really hasn't changed, as you say. No, he can't change. I mean, he gets sort of fixated now on fake news and that kind of thing. I guess one of the things that makes Trump so attractive to everybody is the sense that there is such a clear character 
Yes. Yeah. However, he is already so extreme that surely that presents problems as well. I mean, I think Peter Serafinovich, the comedian, has got this brilliant thing, I think, on you can see it on YouTube, called Sassy Trump, where he uses film of Trump and uses exactly Trump's words, but he dubs him in a kind of camp voice and sometimes an English voice mm. and it just gives it just kind of skews Trump slightly and unlike that American comedian who's famous for doing Trump who I can't remember his name Baldwin um, Alec Baldwin Baldwin he, uh, who's who's kind of quite crude in his thing Serafinovich gets his his kind of camp quality and his funny little which you can see, always see in his arm gestures, but the way he says things, it's very, very, it's almost like Kenneth Williams. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there's a sort of peevishness to him. There's a small-minded quality to him, which Baldwin doesn't get. It's, he does him almost like a kind of powerful Russian president. or something. Well, a lot of what you do, I know that you study your form quite well, so whenever you do anyone, not just Trump, you get a, as many samples of their writing and their speaking as you can. Yes, that is one that's a way of work avoidance because you think, well, if I'm, you know, if I, it's easier to read tweets rather than create them. It's also a kind of laziness because, especially with Trump, you can use uh, 95% of what he writes and just change the name or that, that kind of thing. But also, I think that um, with parody, the mistake people make when they're trying to do parodies is just doing too much of themselves. And you should just let, um, you know, it's like jujitsu or something, you should let the person's wait. creates the fall well actually on that note I have a little game that I thought might be useful to play I have got some Trump tweets and I've got some of your Trump tweets so um, I guess I'll be able to do them just because I think you probably will I mean because usually I mean if I can't then it's a it doesn't say much for my tweets because I think there's the thing about parodies you're you're not just trying to recreate someone you're Mm. trying to edge them into comedy whilst retaining their essence and so i think if i can't get it, it means my joke isn't good enough okay we'll see well, so this yeah, is yeah. basically a referendum right. on your jokes right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is yeah yeah <laughs> lightweight bands so-called stars refuse to play at my inauguration poor work ethic unfair um i guess that was trump yeah that's you it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah you see i should have put some specific <laughs> rock reference or or that someone he was hoping to get who would be a very naff yeah. person okay next um, up yeah it's freezing <laughs> it's freezing and snowing in new york we need global warming i'd say that's trump it is trump good yeah good. <laughs> yeah so it's one all so far um the cheap 12 inch square marble tiles behind speaker at un always bothered me I will replace with beautiful large marble slabs if they ask me. Oh, I mean, that would be, I would be quite pleased if I'd done that, but I can't remember doing it, so I guess that's Trump. It is Trump. Yeah, good. Oh, man, you've got so many of them so far. <laughs> uh, one last one. Happy New Year to all, including to my many enemies and those who have fought me and lost so badly they just don't know what to do. I've seen he he's done tweets which say... Happy Father's Day, even to the losers and haters. And so, and he does a whole series of that, usually. So, in a way, his are usually stronger than that. I'd say that's Trump, I'm afraid. It is Trump. Oh, good, good. Yeah, oh, you've done very well. (laughs) Actually, I think the last one I did was not tweets. It was sort of, it was going to be an A to Z of his 
things and it was just irrational likes and dislikes it was and it was more on his on the way he speaks and so i only got to g because then the space run out because i only have whatever it is 1200 words or something and say so it was sort of a is for apricot and d is for dalmatians and he just kind of rant on shall i do one of yeah those? yeah a is for apricot. I never liked apricots. Never. They're nasty, stupid little fruit. Fact. You can't call them a real fruit. They're like a peach, but not a peach. More like a total loser peach. Second, you start eating one, it's all over. There's nothing there. Nothing. And you know what? It's an amazing thing. But I read somewhere that they're what ISIS eat. I'm telling you, apricots are what ISIS feeds its terrorists on. And that's what sends them mad. It's true. And it goes on like that. And so I think that's a way. I mean, I always prefer kind of nonsense and silliness in my own writing and in comedians, to um, sort of serious comedy. He's a fan of attributing to other people as well. So he says a lot of people are saying. Yes. And then he'll mention a conspiracy theory. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a suggestion that when the ghastly press man, Sean Spicer, the sort of weedy, <laughs> weedy press man, it's very good. There is a great sort of circus troupe of comic figures. But when he's giving his, I think it's a daily news conference, they now think that um, that Trump, and they're always in the lunch that are sort of one to two, that Trump isn't kind of working on being president. He's listening into them, these things, which were meant to save him the time of doing them himself. Because now people have noticed that notes are being given to Sean Spicer as he's going on. And so even in those press conferences, which are meant to save him the bother of meeting the press, he's still obsessing about the press. That is fascinating. And they're um, sort of, they're, they're written in, you know, large, thick felt pens, aren't they? Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, because he, yes, he has that big writing. Have you noticed how long it takes him to sign? When he was signing all those <laughs> declarations or whatever, it took him a very long time to sign his own name. And I don't know, he's, he's a fascinating figure. Craig Brown there. That's it for this week's episode of Page 94. But excitingly, there is going to be another one in a fortnight's time. I know it seems impossible, but it is going to be happening. Uh, thank you very much to Craig Brown, to Paul Vickers and to you for listening. And we'll see you again next time. Goodbye. <laughs>